All right, so we are in the Gospel of Mark, and today we're going to be wrapping up chapter 5. Last week, we looked at the first section of the, the hemorrhaging woman and Jairus' daughter. So let's go ahead and do a little bit of a review on that section. If you're not already in Mark 5, I would open up there, and um, let's talk about what clues we have about the, the mindset, the heart condition of both Jairus and the woman that we looked at last week in Mark 5, 25 through 34. I'm putting you to the test this morning, seeing if you've actually had your coffee, um, asking you to think back to last week and consider where these guys were at in uh, their, their effect and their, their response to, to Jesus even before they encountered Jesus? What was the, the mindset or the heart condition of Jairus and this woman? Yeah, they both found themselves in a needy situation, right? What else? What else do you guys see in the passage there? Yeah, and we talked about at the beginning of the, the section in verse 21, how when Jesus had come back over on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, there was a large crowd that was staying there, and they were waiting for him, according to Luke. There was a, a bunch of people already there because Jesus had been gaining popularity. People knew about him. They, uh, they heard about these stories and about his authority and how he didn't teach as other scribes, but he had this separate authority. And um, just going back to all the miraculous things that he's done so far, he's casting out demons, he's uh, rebuking um, fevers and uh, raising people who are lame and giving sight to the blind. He's doing all of these miraculous things and people are hearing about it and responding to it. What else? Anything else we see about the, the heart condition of these two folks we looked at last week? Yes, good. They are convinced within themselves. They have a, a faith within themselves. They believe that he is able. Um, so we do see, just looking at Jairus at first, that uh, remember he was a, a synagogue official. And we talked about that for a little bit. So despite this profession of being a, a synagogue official and the, the negative disposition that his superiors would have had towards Jesus, um, remember the, the scribes and the Pharisees, they were teaming up with the Herodians trying to um, contemplate how they might destroy Jesus, how they might kill him. And this is the environment that Jairus is coming from. And yet, despite coming from that environment, he's willing to come to Jesus. As Jerry just pointed out, he has a, an understanding that he's able, that he has faith in, in Christ. In verse 22, it says that he came and he fell before his feet. So um, he is again, in this lowly position, um, like Britt said, he, he's going through some stuff and he realizes his need for Jesus and he's coming and falling down before him. 23 says that he, is, he was imploring him earnestly. So he's not coming to him uh, with this sense of superiority. He's not demanding 
or entitled in the way that he approaches Jesus. But he comes and he, he falls down before him and he's imploring him. He's asking and begging Jesus to help his daughter. So he did have uh, faith and he had faith that she would in fact get well. We see that at the end of verse 23. He said, um, just please come and lay your hands on her that she will get well and live, that she will literally be saved. That was his hope, that was his faith, and we see it displayed here. Well, we only got to the, that first section of Jairus imploring Jesus to come and uh, save his daughter. And then we see that that story was interrupted by this woman with a hemorrhage. Jesus was on his way to, to go to his house and to uh, assist him in aiding his sick daughter. And then this other woman comes up. <clears throat> and this woman also was at rock bottom. Remember, for 12 years, she had spent all of her money going to doctor after doctor, trying to be healed from this hemorrhage that she has. And uh, Mark says, not only did she not get healed, but she even became worse. Um, remember, Luke just said, well, she's, she's incurable. But Mark says, no, these doctors actually did harm to this woman. She became even worse off than she was beforehand. And we see... Similar to Jairus in verse 27, that she has faith as well. It says that after hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. So she had at least enough faith to take some kind of action. Enough faith to take a, a leap, right? To take a step, to do something about it. And then in verse 28 it says, For she thought, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. So again, we see this convincing attitude in, in both Jairus and this woman that Jesus will make them well. He will uh, fix their issue. So Jairus's daughter would be uh, fixed. That was his understanding. That was his disposition. And then in verse 33, it says that the woman was fearing and trembling. We talk about this a, a little bit towards the end of class, and I don't think um, this is so much focused on the fact that she was uh, afraid or even embarrassed with her condition. I mean, perhaps that was an aspect of it. But this is the same word that we saw back in at the end of chapter 4 when the disciples were on the sea with Jesus and Jesus calmed the sea and then they became very afraid. They became terrified. Uh, they had this, this phobia rise up within them, seeing the power that Jesus had. And same thing that we see in uh, chapter 5, verse 15, when Jesus cast out the demon. Uh, the, the legion demons, rather, says that they came to Jesus and they observed the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down, clothed in his right mind, the very man who had had the legion, and they became frightened. So, again, I think for the, the third time in really less than a chapter, we see people responding to Jesus and his holiness and the absolute awe and majesty of who he is and what he's able to do, and they're terrified. They're, they're fearful, right? They're in the same position that Isaiah was in, in Isaiah chapter 6, when he fell down before the Lord and he says, woe is me, I am unclean, I am unworthy, I am a man of unclean lips. Uh, that was the, the response to being in the presence of Jesus. And part of what she was feeling was knowing she was a sinner, she felt unworthy, mm -hmm. and she got something from Jesus that she didn't deserve. Amen. Yep. And we talked about that a little bit last week too, right? The, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. That's where we have to start. We have to start. That's, that's the faith, you know? Yeah. I'm a sinner and I'm unworthy. That's, that's where we all start. Mm -hmm. That's where she was. But yet she wanted to be whole. And what is the opposite of that? I deserve it. Give yeah, it this self-righteousness. This is, this is all mine, right? This sense of entitlement. 
And I think that both these people came to Jesus with, with the opposite kind of attitude, with the opposite mindset, where they were faithful and, and realizing their need. Uh, Andy. Well, what's his name? Jairus? Jairus? Being part of the synagogue, you know, at this moment, Jesus would have been sort of enemy number one mm-hmm. of the synagogue rulers. So he was going against his fellow Sanhedrin or the synagogue. And I think, you know, he was in desperation because his daughter was dying. And, you know, that's oftentimes what drives us to Christ. Yeah. is when we've reached the end, we've reached rock bottom, there's nowhere else for us to go. Amen. Um, and that's our, our own pride and, and <clears throat> self-righteousness. Yeah, and I don't but, think we get there on our own, right? No. And, you know, and, and the Holy Spirit uses that. And mm-hmm. God is sovereign. He puts us in those situations Amen. to bring people to himself. The woman... Um, I think the implication was it was like a menstrual thing. So she would have been unclean, mm-hmm. literally, for 12 years. She couldn't go into the temple. She couldn't uh, hang out with family. She definitely would have been ostracized. Yeah, even her family within her own household, if they came into contact with her, they would be unclean. Unclean, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah so there's that whole social stigma associated with it as well. Yeah, yeah good. Yeah, and as you mentioned, it's not just that Jesus is able to use a situation or, or take the situation and make it good, but I think God is one who put these people in this situation even to begin with. You can go back to Genesis fifty twenty, right? And what Joseph's brothers meant for evil, God meant for good. Not just that he, he took it and flipped it and used it for good. No, he, he meant those situations for good. Um, I was listening to a, a sermon this week, and it was just highlighting the fact how Joseph getting his his multicolored coat, how important that was, because that caused his brothers to be jealous, right? Had Joseph not gotten that coat, maybe his brothers wouldn't have been jealous. Maybe they wouldn't have thrown him into that, that pit and, and sold him off to, to Potiphar, and maybe he wouldn't have uh, gone and become the, the second in command in Egypt. And then what would have happened when that, that famine struck? Um, then Israel wouldn't have been saved by the, the wisdom that Joseph brought to Egypt. And um, just this whole stream of events was orchestrated by God, even though from our perspective, it seems like these are just kind of happenstance situations and the brothers are really pulling the strings. No, God is behind all of this. Just as God is behind this woman having this, this hemorrhage for 12 years and this young girl who's uh, at this point at the point of death, um, God is behind all of it for sure. All right, well, um, let's look at this, this woman. How was this woman able to make power flow out of Jesus? How did she cause that power to flow out of him? You, you chuckled, Jerry. Why'd you chuckle? Yeah, precisely. So it was her, her faith that is pointed to later on that says, this is why you were healed, right? For her faith. But uh, by no means did she cause this power to flow out of Jesus. And a lot of people think that. Um, a lot of commentators think that and say, well, she, she caused this power to flow out because of her, her faith. And 
um, almost as if it was something that she caused Jesus to do against his will, that he had no part in it, no desire to, to make her well. He was fully aware. Jesus, being God, is fully in control of all of his um, everything, right? All of his attributes, all of his power. Uh, he's not able to be manipulated. Um, there's this new new wave, this prosperity gospel that is really popular today, this name it, claim it theology all over uh, TBN, the Trinity Broadcasting Network, which um, deserves a, a big red flag or two. Um, lots of people who are on that network are um, not, not the best. Brittany said sketchy. It's a, a good word. Um, and they'll say things like, well, God made these promises to us in the Bible. We just need to, to name it and claim it. We need to say, God, you said this in your Bible. And oftentimes it's not even to, to us. They'll take verses out of context that God said to, to somebody else. And they'll say, well, because God said it, if I claim it, he has to do it. Almost as if we can hold something over God and say, you say that you are obligated to, to do such and such. Uh, occasionally I'll have my boys try to do that with me and say, well, Dad, you said that we could do such and such. And I'll tell them, well, first of all, I had some conditions attached to that. I said, if you do your chores or what's expected of you, then I will consider doing such and such. I try to be careful with my words because I am a fallen man. Yes. And I will remind them of the fact that uh, I'm not God. God says that, um, he says, have I not said it and will I not do it? Have I not proclaimed it and will I not come to pass? That is God, right? I am not God. I'm, I'm a fallen man. And I'm not always able to, um, to do the things that you think that I said that I would do. Um, but even so, you can't come to me with my own words and, and throw them in my face. I'm, I'm telling you right now, we're not going to do that. Um, and that's kind of the same attitude that some of these people have towards Jesus, that they can somehow twist his arm and manipulate the God of the universe into doing what it is that we want him to do for us. And again, that's a mindset that some people have towards what happened here. That's not at all what took place. Jesus was fully aware of this power flowing out of him. He was fully in control. And um, it wasn't the fact that she just reached out and, and touched him, right? So this next question, I suppose I just kind of answered. Um, how was the woman made well? And why is this significant? It's not the fact that she just touched the fringe of his cloak. It's not that, that act of doing it, but it was a faith that made her well. And um, as, as believers in Christ, as his representatives, we need to be able to defend the fact that it is our faith that makes us well, that we aren't saved by uh, performing works or, or doing different things. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put you to the test. I'm going to give you a pop quiz right here. Uh, what are some passages you might take people to that say just that, that we are made well by our faith, not by... Um, the things that we do. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. All right, Ephesians 2.8 and 9. It's by grace that we are saved through faith, right? And very specifically says, not of yourselves so that nobody can boast. Not by works so nobody can boast. Titus, is it 3, 4, and 5? Yeah. Titus 3, 5, talking about the washing of regeneration from the Holy Spirit. He is the one who uh, gives us that, that cleansing within us. Here, I'll read it. It says, But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. So, not by works that we've done, but 
He saved us by the washing and regeneration. Good. What about one more? Who's got one more? Come on, Christian. <laughs> All right. Romans uh, 3. Yes, we're at in Romans 3. 30. Romans 3.30. What does that say? Since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. Are you thinking 28? Yeah. Yes, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no man will be, no, just apart from works of the law. And then I started adding a different verse. Um, what verse was that? I don't know. Uh, Galatians 2.21, maybe. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the works of the law, then Christ died needlessly, or Christ died for nothing. These are verses we should know and uh, have ready because it is central to what the gospel is and it defends against how the gospel has been perverted in so many different ways in our world today. Another good one is John 6, 28 and 29, where they ask Jesus, well, what are the works that we have to do to enter into the kingdom of God? They, they want a list. They want to be able to say, well, I've done A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And Jesus says, no, this is the work, the singular work of God that you believe in the one that he has sent. And again, that seems to be the, the disposition of the people we're looking at today, of Jairus and this woman, um, they're saved by their faith, not by these things that they are doing. Yes, good. In Matthew 5, 20, it says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the, the scribes and the Pharisees, and you will no way enter the kingdom of heaven. It's not a righteousness of our own, right? It's a righteousness that has been imputed to us, that has been given to us from Christ, that he has taken our sin, and in turn, he has given us his righteousness. All right, and what have we identified as Mark's purpose for writing throughout our study? Why is Mark writing this gospel to begin with? Yes, to show that Jesus is the suffering servant, right? Each of the four gospel writers are all writing essentially the same thing, the story of Christ's life and ministry and death and resurrection, but they all have a, a slightly different slant. And Mark is writing with this purpose to show that Jesus was the suffering servant. Um, he's painting this picture of Jesus' life, this journey to the cross, and the realization that people have, and they're, they're gaining that this truly is the Son of God. And... All along, they're seeing that this man is a, a servant, that he loves people. He came to, to serve people. And Mark 10, 45, what does that verse say? We're going to get there, I promise. Who's got Mark 10, 45 memorized? For the Son of Man, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Good job. The Son of Man did not come to serve, but did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That again is, kind of summarizes the purpose of Mark in his gospel. All right, well, let's jump back into this story. Um, before we do that, I'll go back and catch us up. I'll read uh, verses 21 through 34 for us. 
says, When Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him. And so he stayed by the seashore. One of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up and on seeing him fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she may get well and live. And he went off with him. And a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. A woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. For she thought, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. Immediately, the flow of her blood was dried up and she fell in her body, felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Immediately, Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing in on you, and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see the woman who had done this. But the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your afflictions. So again, this story kind of gets interrupted, right? So at this point, we're, we're focused on this woman, but we have to remember Jairus, right? And his petition for his young daughter. And let me just ask, at this point, as this whole scene is unfolding, and this woman's coming up and, and being killed, what do you suppose is going through the mind of Jairus? What do you think Jairus is thinking? What would you be thinking at, at this point. Let's don't go. forget me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, don't forget me. Let, Remember what we were doing. <laughs> Remember you said you were going to come and help me. Well, what are we doing talking to this woman and getting stuck on this woman? And surely he's had, he had some sense of compassion for her and felt for her, but he had his own problem too. He knew that his daughter was, was dying. Um, it likely took quite a while for this whole scene to unfold. Um, we've been watching through the, the Gospel of John as a family, and Marshall, my, my middle boy, he, um, he says, I, I don't even know what's going on. I'm just confused because they're jumping from one scene to another. Um, that's kind of how the Gospels read a little bit. They are summarizations of the whole life of Christ. His three-year ministry kind of compacted down into something you can read in an hour. So, of course, there are going to be a, a lot of summaries, and there is going to be a lot of jumping around and bouncing around. And so in verse... 35, when it says that while he was still speaking, it could be talking about that, that one sentence that he said, just the verse before, daughter, your faith has made you well, go in peace and be healed of your affliction. And then boom, at that moment, then these other people enter into the scene. <clears throat> or it could be that Jesus had been using this as an, a teaching opportunity to teach this woman, to teach the whole crowd that is around him. And he'd been teaching for, for some time, maybe upwards of an hour or two, using this as an opportunity to, to teach and to really draw out this woman's sin and her faith and what it is that has made her well, and teaching the, the multitude, the crowd that is around him. I think that's very likely, especially considering the, the purpose that, that Jesus came for. Remember back in uh, chapter 1, verse 38, when Peter comes up and says, hey, Jesus, people want you to come and heal them. They want you to perform these magic tricks and uh, do these cool things for him. And, and Jesus says in verse 38, well, let's go somewhere else to the towns nearby 
so that I can preach there also, for that is what I came for. Jesus came to preach and to teach. That was his, his primary focus. And so I have no doubt that that's what he was doing here as he's dealing with this woman and um, everything that, is, that, that comes along with that, the, the truths that need to be conveyed um, to this woman. And I think that's what's going on when Again, in verse 35, while he was speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue official saying, your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? Um, that's the, the response that, that Jairus is getting. So whatever's going through his mind uh, at the point of watching this woman be healed, that's interrupted by this news that comes from his house saying, you know what, it's, it's too late. Um, your daughter, your, your only daughter, as we learn in Luke, she's, she's died. Um, don't bother the teacher anymore. You, you tried to get help, but, but now it's a lost cause. And this is a, a very natural reaction, right? Um, I think it can be easy for us to, to kind of stand, knowing the, the rest of the story, that Jesus does go to her house, and he does raise up this woman, this young girl, rather. Um, it can be easy for us to judge and say, well, they, they didn't have any faith at all. They just kind of wrote Jesus off. But that's the, the natural thing to do when somebody dies, right? Uh, all of history has taught us that death is final, that death is permanent. And remember, up until this point, Jesus hadn't raised anybody from the dead. This is the first time we see Jesus doing that at all. In fact, it's been some 700 years or so since anybody had been risen from the dead, back when Elijah and Elisha had risen people from the dead. So this was the, the farthest thing from the minds of these these aides to the synagogue official who likely didn't even trust in Christ to the same extent that, that Jairus did. But um, it's natural for us to, to expect somebody to, to stay dead when they die, right? Um, we shouldn't stand in, in judgment over that. Um, so we get here kind of the, the cleaned up version of what happens that um, these people come and they tell Jairus, your daughter has died. Don't, don't trouble the teacher anymore. Verse 36 but says, but Jesus overhearing what, had, what was being spoken said to the synagogue official, do not be afraid any longer, only believe. So again, this is just really quick, the, the summarized Cliff Notes version. But likely Jairus was just beside himself, right? His only daughter had just died. I'm sure that he was just bawling and, and weeping that he was uh, really out of control, incoherent, absolutely beside himself. And Jesus, rather than waiting for, for Jairus to approach him, G Jesus approaches Jairus and initiates the, the conversation with him and encourages him not to, to lose hope, but to continue to, to hold on to that hope. And so that's what he says in verse 36. Do not be afraid any longer, only believe. Or, or keep on believing. These are present tense imperatives or commands that Jesus is telling this man to, to stop fearing and to just keep on believing, uh, to continue to believe. Yes, Jim. I think maybe this is a lesson for us not to give up on God. Say, well, it's too late now. Even God can't help me. God can't fix the situation. You know, it's too, too far gone, too fast. Yeah, I think that's an appropriate application. We, we tend to do the same thing. Well, it's mm -hmm. done now, nothing you can do about it. Yeah, and yeah, we're told to, to pray continually, right? 
Uh, you can look at Luke 11 and Luke 18, and the, the woman who was persistent before the, the judge, the, the wicked judge, and she just kept going to him and, and asking him and, and pleading to him. And even though he was a, a wicked man, a human judge, he still gave in, not because it was right, but because he was tired of her pestering. And um, then the, the other story was the, the man who went to his friend's house, his quote unquote friend's house and said, hey, I need some bread. And the man didn't give it to him because he, he was his friend, but because he was tired of him yelling and screaming and waking up his kids. So he said, here, take some bread, leave me alone. And uh, we can take that same principle in, in prayer that our God is, is not a wicked judge. Our God is not an annoyed friend. And we can go to him with our petitions and we should be consistent in going to him. Um, Steve George, do you have your hand up? Yeah, I was gonna say, uh, be not afraid only believe, have hope, trust. Yeah. Those three go together. Afraid, that's, that's, that's like shutting everything off. So when I think about our lives, you know, whatever we are involved in, if we just trust God, believe, and hope, and that's, that's what it's all about. Mm -hmm. And if, if we become afraid, it, it could be a habit. If we're critical, it could be a habit. So within my own life, I gotta try and figure out, okay, what's going on here? Am I being too negative? Am I being too critical, too condemning? Let's, let's focus in more on hope, believe, and trusting God. And, and, and that's the whole story right there, especially with Joseph who was sold into Egypt. That's a great story about trusting God. Even in his affliction, yeah. he trusted God. Good. Yeah, Philippians 4, 6, right? Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Um, so, yeah, stop, stop fearing. Cast out that, that fear. And Where is that you read? Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Four, six. Yep, it's a good one. All right, and so Jesus tells this man, stop fearing keep on believing and Luke in the parallel account in Luke 8:50 he adds that she will be made well that's what Jesus told this man he said stop fearing just just keep on believing this faith that you had when you came to me hold on to that faith keep that faith um, because she will be made well this is what the assurance that Jesus gives him and remember that he was watching this whole scene unfold with this woman right and while I'm sure he had that that anxious heart within him that you guys mentioned like hurry up come on what about my daughter we're come on jesus we, we were doing something right um at the same time this potential pitfall for his faith that could really cause him to to doubt and to worry and to be anxious i think ultimately added faith to this man to see dude look what jesus just did for this woman this woman who was hurt and she had this ailment and, and jesus healed her and he's on his way to my house um surely Things are going to work out well. He told me, keep believing. He said that she, he will make her well. Uh, I think I'll, I'll do that. I'm going to stop fearing. I'm going to keep believing, and Jesus will make her well. Uh, I think that that ultimately ended up boostering his, his faith. And then uh, we see in verse 37 that Jesus departs from the crowd, and he restores a little bit of privacy to this situation. Remember, this whole big crowd has been following along. 
um, with this very intimate matter of, of Jairus's daughter. And they're headed to Jairus's house. He's got all these people coming with him. Uh, that's not the, the kind of situation that I would want if that were my kid. Uh, all these strangers following Jesus to my house. And so Jesus seems to do something about that in verse 37. After telling the man to, to not be afraid and to only believe, he says, it says, the text says that, he allowed no one to accompany him except for Peter and James and John, the brother of James. So he kind of narrows the, the group down a little bit. He says, Peter, James, John, you guys come with me. Everybody else, uh, gone with you, right? Uh, we, we got something that we're going to do here. And have you guys ever wondered why those three, why Jesus chose those three? Let me read this quote from you for you from Jerome and see what you think about it. He says, why are these three apostles always chosen and the others sent away? Peter, James, and John. But why only three? First, there is the mystery of the Trinity embedded in this number. A number sacred in itself. Second, according to Moses, Jacob set three peeled branches in the watering troughs. Finally, it is written, a three-ply cord is not easily broken. Any thoughts or questions? About Jerome. What? <laughs> I'm not messing with you. I'm just telling you what Jerome said. Because, sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. Well, Jerome was analogizing three being a holy number. I mean, yes, the Trinity is the Trinity. Fact, but it's not like three is going to have some magic property in and of itself. He's, yeah. he's he's reading more into those texts than what is there. Yeah, absolutely. The text doesn't say anything about that, right? Yeah. Uh, he is kind of off in left field, and and Jerome is good on some things. He's hit and miss. He's an old fourth century theologian, um, but. Yeah, that is just, that's out of nowhere, right? That has nothing to do with the fact that Jesus chose these three. Uh, we need to stick to the text, practice those skills of hermeneutics we've been learning on, on Wednesday nights, right? Not to, to add things into the text that aren't in the text. When you, when you went on the mountain or whatever, you trans, transfiguration. Yes. Huh? Transfiguration. Transfiguration. He didn't yeah. take three then, did he? Yes. Yeah, he did. The same three. Oh, was it? Yeah. I thought it was only two. Okay. Yeah, it was a three. The two came, Moses and Elijah, but yeah, it was those three. Well, it is interesting for us to look in retrospect. Peter did turn out to be the leader. He was the rock. Church. Yes. James was the first one killed. Mm -hmm. John was the last one. He lasted the longest. Those were the three that needed the most Training, obviously, yes. Peter. So he, he was giving them a, an extra course of training here. You are much wiser than Jerome. <laughs> <laughs> yes, so uh, we can look at uh, contextually and not just kind of pull things randomly, but those three we see later on as Jerry mentioned, Peter was the rock, right? He was the, the leader of the disciples all throughout. He was always the one to, to speak up. And later on, he became the, 
the one who would write First and Second Peter to these suffering Christians. He was the one who kind of dictated these words even to John Mark for this gospel that we're reading. Uh, and James, as you mentioned, was the first one martyred in Acts chapter 12. Certainly he needed a little bit more care and training. Uh, and John went on to write five books in the New Testament. He was the, the last living apostle, the only one not to be martyred. And um, these were three leaders, even within the, the 12 men that Jesus chose for his leadership development. So we know that Jesus had many other disciples apart from just these 12. Uh, Luke chapter 10 talks about how he sent out 70, uh, two by two. But he has the, the 12 disciples that he really focused on. And uh, he spent the most time with them. He really poured into them. And of those 12, he had these three, Peter, James, and John, who made up his inner circle that he spent even more time with. And uh, they, they followed along with him. Um, this was his... His, his MO, this is how he operated. He chose a, a few number of people so that he could really emphasize his ministry with them and, and towards them. Um, perhaps you guys remember hearing last year about um, Rick Warren and had his claim at the Southern Baptist Convention to have trained 1.1 million men for the pastorate, which boils down to uh, 70 pastors a day that he said that he trained or 25,000 a year over his 43-year ministry, uh, which, first of all, everybody kind of realizes is just wildly exaggerated. But secondly, that's not Jesus' uh, leadership style. That's not how he approached his, his life and his ministry. Remember back in Mark 4, we talked about the, the parable of the mustard seed, right? It starts off small, insignificant. I think Jerry uses the, the word uh, inconspicuous, and then it grows up into this big mustard tree. Uh, it starts off small, when Jesus really focusing on these three men, on these 12 men, and then they would go out and they would uh, impact the world and, and change the world for Jesus' sake. And uh, these men, we do see them later on in situations like the transfiguration in um, Matthew 17, or even in, in this gospel in, um, it's in Mark 9, verse 2, talking about the transfigurations, Peter, James, and John who are there. And then uh, later on in Mark 13, verse 3, we see Peter, James, John, and Andrew. They were all questioning Jesus privately on the, the Mount of Olives. And then later after that, in Mark 14, 33, in the, the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus goes off to pray. He says, hey, Peter, James, John, my, my good buddies, come with me and come pray with me. And of course, they, they failed in that, but it was those three who were there along with Jesus praying that um, that cup might be taken away from him. And so um, Jesus takes these three and he's taking them away from the crowd, kind of quieting the situation a little bit. But this privacy doesn't last too long. It's kind of short-lived, actually. Um, we see in verse 38 that they came to the house of the synagogue official and he saw a commotion and people loudly weeping and wailing and entering in. He said to them, why make a commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but is asleep. So um, William Lane, he has this quote on what's going on here, these mourners that are there. He says, since even the poorest man was required by common like common something, to hire a minimum of two flute players and one professional mourner in the event of his wife's death. It is probable that one who had the rank of synagogue ruler would be expected to hire a large number of professional mourners. 
So it was the, the custom of that time in, in Jewish culture to hire people to come in and to mourn with you when there was a, a funeral. It wasn't something that was just quiet and reserved, um, kind of like our funerals today. It was loud and uh, kind of a, a scene. Um, let me read a couple of verses to you from the Old Testament where we see this going on. Jeremiah 9.17 says, Thus says the Lord, Consider and call for the mourning woman, women that they may come, and send for the welling women that they may come. And then in Amos 5.16 says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, the Lord, there is welling in all the plazas and in all the streets. They say, Alas, alas. They also call the farmer to mourning and the professional mourners to lamentation. So for a while, this has been the practice that there are professional mourners that come and help you grieve and they just kind of dwell and, and you pay them to come and kind of fill up the, um, what is it called? Like the place where you go when people die, I guess. Um, yes, yeah, Steve. So they actually, you can actually have a job to be a professional mourner? <laughs> You'd have a hard time being employed doing that today. But yeah, it was common back then. They were professional mourners and they go in and they'd be really loud. And Here, so let me. When Jesus came in and said, uh, Be quiet. Not that, she's just asleep. That's getting in the way of their business. A little bit, yeah. Yeah, they're there for a job. And Jesus interrupted their job. Let me read you this quote from, from Bauer. He kind of explains this process a little bit. He says, The woman from a form a circle around the leader of the dance of dead and dance rhythmically from left to right with their hair hanging down. Gradually, they increase their mourning lament and the wild movement of hands and feet until their faces become flushed to a high degree and appear especially excited as the time of burial draws near. That was what the, the mourners were paid to do. So it's a whole show. It's not really genuine. It's just kind of a, an act to help bring the the room to the right desired mood that they're looking for. And Jesus, um, he kind of confronts them, right? And uh, his, Jesus interrupted this commotion. Oh, I went too far. No, I didn't. <laughs> he interrupted this commotion with uh, an apparently ludicrous announcement saying, she's not dead, but she is just asleep. Well, the Bible will often use this word sleep as a, a euphemism for death, but that's not what's going on here. Jesus is actually contrasting the two. He's saying she's not dead. She's only asleep. And so we have to ask ourselves, well, what does that mean if she's not dead, but she is only sleeping? Um, first off, we have to realize that nowhere does the Bible talk about soul sleep. Um, that's kind of a, a popular doctrine, especially amongst Seventh-day Adventists and uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, they think that when we die, our, our body just goes on the ground. It's just like we're sleeping. Um, even some more um, mainstream Christian people will say that uh, we just sleep until the, the resurrection, and then we are resurrected to, to be with Christ. Um, but nowhere does the Bible talk about soul sleep. Could I get you guys to, somebody to look up that reference in 2 Corinthians 5. Who's got that one? Looks like Jerry's headed there. What about Philippians 1.23? Will somebody head to Philippians? And that passage in Hebrews, Hebrews 9.27 says that it is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. That is the, the normal flow of things. That 
we die, and then we are going to be judged for, um, for where we are. If we are in Christ or outside of Christ, um, there's no soul sleep. In 2 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8. Somebody have that ready? Therefore, always being of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. But, or rather, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body than to be home with the Lord. Amen. So to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. There's no in-between period. There is a, an in-between period where we don't have our, our physical bodies. Later on at the resurrection, we'll receive our physical bodies. But as soon as somebody who is in Christ dies, they are immediately with the Lord. In Philippians 1, 23 and 24, who has that for us? I got it. All right, go ahead, Joseph. It says, But I am more pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus, though my coming to you again. All right. So Paul says the same thing in Philippians. It, it would be better for him to be absent from the body and to be present with God. Um, that would be much better for him. And so this girl's condition uh, merely mimicked sleep from the, the mourner's perspective. She truly was dead, though not finally. She hadn't entered into that, that judgment. She wasn't um, in eternity. It was just uh, an appearance of sleep. And Jesus was coming to, to wake her out of that sleep. And the response that we see from the mourners um, is that they... In verse 40, um, after Jesus said, the child is not dead, but she's asleep, they began laughing at him. And putting them out, he took along the child's father, mother, and companions and entered the room where the child was. So the, the crowd responds with, with blatant laughter. They just laugh in the face of Jesus. Um, and Jesus literally throws them out. He put them out and says, no, we're, I'm going to get rid of you guys. And this is a, a similar response to those who had ascribed the power of Satan to Jesus, or Jesus' power to Satan, um, to, to unbelieving Israel who had rejected Jesus as their Messiah, and um, now he's speaking to them only in parables. This is a, a similar response, um, just to, to laugh at, at Jesus. Do you guys see any parallels in this response and the response of our world today? A little bit, right? That we live in a world. What's that? They're still laughing in the face of this miracle. Yeah, absolutely. Not just this miracle, but uh, even his own resurrection. All the, the miracles that we find in the Bible, they deny the inspiration of the Bible. They embrace naturalism and deny any kind of miracles or, or supernaturalism, saying that can't be true at all. They deny the, the sovereignty of God. They deny the, the image of God that is within us and think that we can just mar the, the image of God. Um, Remember, we just recently talked about how that was the, the purpose of the demons, to, to mar and to distort the image of God in man. And that's going on in our world all, all the time today. What's that? He's just a crutch. Yeah, he's just a crutch. And as Christians, as believers, we have to remember that it's a fool who has said in his heart, there is no God. 
right? It's a fool who laughs in the face of Jesus. Uh, Jesus wasn't about to cast his pearls before these people like swine. Um, if they're coming to mock him, then they can leave. He just casts them out. Galatians 6, 7, and 8 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows this, he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And so Jesus casts these people out. And verse 41 says, Taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which translated means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old. And immediately they were com completely astounded. And he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. And he said that something should be given her to eat. So verses 41 and 42, we see that Jesus raises her with a touch. Again, this is very personal. Uh, Jesus came to her house. He ditched the crowd. He brought in just her parents, just the inner circle. And then he takes her by the hand and he raises her up. This shows and demonstrates the, the compassion of Jesus, the humanity of Jesus, his uh, care for her. And we see that just like the, the woman, she was healed instantaneously. There wasn't any uh, period of time that had to elapse, no medication to take. And um, it was an astonishment to the onlookers who, it says two times in verse 42, immediately. So immediately the girl got up. And then immediately they were completely astounded. They realized, just like the other woman, this man's got some power. There's, there's something different about Jesus. He just raised this girl from the dead. They were immediately astonished by what Jesus had done for this little girl. And then in verse 43, it's a little bit different. It says that Jesus requested the silence of these people. And the request for the silence seems to operate as a means of judgment on the other people. Uh, again, similar to Jesus responding to the people blaspheming against the Holy Spirit, and then shortly after, only teaching in parables, so they can't know, so that they're not able to, to come and to respond to the parables. Uh, the people here are literally laughing at Jesus, and Jesus doesn't allow them to witness his miraculous power. He keeps them out of the room, and even further, he doesn't allow them to, to hear about it shortly after. Uh, John 1, 11 says that he came to his own and his own did not receive him. John 5, 43 says, I have come in my father's name and you did not receive me. And so this girl's, uh, this miraculous healing, raising of this girl, they weren't allowed to see that. They weren't even allowed to know what took place until he was already out of the area, out of the region likely. Uh, remember Jairus, he was a, a public official, in, a synagogue official, and Seems like people already knew about her, her death. Uh, they were all headed to her house, and this whole commotion took place in front of this crowd, so people knew about her death. Um, and so it probably wasn't long before this, her being raised became public knowledge. Surely she wouldn't be able to um, walk around without people noticing, hey, you're that girl that was dead, right? And they couldn't just keep her boxed up and hiding forever. And so this information uh, being delayed in, in getting out would allow Jesus the opportunity to leave without any incident, without people uh, questioning him or, or drawing more attention to him, without people raising him up and, and even worshiping him or trying to make him king like they did in, I think, John chapter 6. Um, it would allow Jesus some time to 
kind of get out of Dodge before any of that could really manifest itself. And then at the end of verse 43, well, yeah. It just seems also a possibility that, you know, by separating himself from her, it also provided a certain degree of protection. Uh, just based on later on, we see Jesus raised Lazarus in a very public way. Yes, um, and people and wanted to kill Lazarus. Immediately, the Pharisees were starting to like, okay, how do we kill this Lazarus guy too? Because he's a walking, talking proof of yep. what Jesus did. This kind of provided a layer of separation between Jesus and the girl that possibly, possibly. Yeah, no, it's good insight. Could be for, for her benefit as well and for her families. And so at the end of verse 43, we see again a, a glimpse into the caring aspect of Jesus where he says, uh, this, this girl, she's, she's probably hungry. Why don't you go and get her something to eat? Uh, he is very cognizant of the girl's physical needs. He makes sure that they're addressed. We see the fact that he is sympathetic. He is relatable. He is a high priest who is uh, tempted in every way as we are, and yet he is without sin. He cares for her um, and wants to, to love on her. And then additionally, it offers a, another proof that she truly was raised from the dead. She's up, she's walking around, she's eating. We saw the same with Lazarus. Lazarus was with Jesus uh, at a feast shortly after. Jesus himself, after his resurrection in John 21, he's having breakfast by the beach, eating these fish. So it offers... Uh, it acts as uh, a confirmation of her being raised from the dead. And just to wrap up real quick, just looking at both of these stories together, think through different similarities in the woman who was healed from her hemorrhage and Jairus' daughter. And there are several different similarities there. We talked already about the, the immediacy with which they were healed. It didn't take any time, but immediately they were healed. Um, I'm just going to go through several others here real quick and point out some similarities that we see. We see that both of them were, in fact, in need. The woman had endured much at the hands of the physicians. Uh, the, the girl died a, a somewhat slow death, we see in verses 23 and 35. We see that both of them were shown compassion by Jesus. Uh, Jesus called the woman daughter, and he gave food to the young girl. We see that both of them uh, came into contact with Jesus, which would make, despite the fact that they were ceremonially unclean and traditionally would cause Jesus himself to be ceremonially, ceremonially unclean, but yet Jesus is pure. He is holy. Uh, he cannot be unclean. But the woman um, touched his garment. This woman who, as we mentioned, had this flow of blood, and anybody she comes into contact with would automatically be unclean. Not so with Jesus. Jesus made her clean because he is so holy. Same with the girl. The girl who was dead uh, wasn't allowed to come into contact with anybody else. And yet Jesus didn't become unclean. Rather, she became clean. She became alive. We see that both were healed by faith. The woman as a result of her faith in verse 34. And the girl as a result of her father's faith in verses 23 and 26. And... Um, looking, zooming out even a little bit farther into looking at chapters 4 and 5, uh, we see Jesus' absolute authority. Again, this is a, a point of focus that Mark has all throughout his gospel, that Jesus is authoritative. And so in chapter 4, we saw that Jesus exercised his authority over nature in calming the storm and the seas. We saw earlier in chapter 5 when Jesus cast out the legion of demons, that he exercised his authority over demons, 
he exercises authority over the disease in the hemorrhaging woman and over death now in this young girl. So Jesus has shown his authority over nature, demons, disease, and death in just a, a short series of verses. And really looking at the, the time frame that this took, this is just Jesus crossing over Galilee and coming back. And already Jesus is boom, boom, boom. Look at how much authority, how much power I have. Jesus is sovereign over all these things, uh, demonstrating the fact that he is, though he is a suffering servant, he is still the sovereign king. And um, to, to have power over death, that is the, the ultimate display of his authority. And that will do it for chapter 5. Next week we will start on chapter 6. We've been doing this for several months now, since October, and we are now in chapter 6. So Let's pray. We'll spend some time in fellowship and come back and gather together. God, once again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your authority. Thank you that we can call you both king and friend. God, we are so unworthy, but we thank you that you have made us worthy through your perfect blood, through your perfect sacrifice. Uh, we are just in awe of who you are. and pray that you would make us more like you every single day. Amen.